If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me, would you, to the Gospel of John and chapter 11. John, chapter 11. We saw here near the end of chapter 11 last week that in spite of all the evidence pointing to Jesus being the very Son of God, God incarnate, including His raising of Lazarus from the dead, there were some who went to the chief priests, some who went to the Pharisees to tell them about what Jesus had been doing. They had gone not to witness about Jesus. They had gone to complain about him. And as we saw last time, as the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together a council the outcome of which leads to what we see in verse 53. Chapter 11, verse 53. Go there with me, would you? And this is where we pick up today as we prepare to enter chapter 12. So follow along in your Bible as I begin reading John chapter 11, verse 53. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version where it says, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Speaking of Jesus, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Now chapter 12 and verse 1, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who uh, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now we've seen this 
several times in our study in John's Gospel, the extreme opposition to Jesus, extreme opposition and hatred directed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And with the clear evidence of the authenticating miracles of Jesus in front of them, here gather the governing and religious authorities, and as they gather, they are rejecting Jesus. Verses 53 and 57 of chapter 11 tells us that they began seeking to arrest Jesus, making plans to put him to death. That seems extreme, to say the least. But there's another even more extreme example of rejection of Jesus. It's here in the midst of the verses I just read. It's the example of Judas. Judas was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, but he didn't really believe in Jesus. Despite being with the group and witnessing the same things as the other disciples, he didn't really believe. The text calls him a thief. Thankfully, there's a different example in the same text here. And that's the example I want to focus on this morning, not the example of Judas, the one no one will name their child after. You ever meet anybody named Judas? Maybe Judah or Jude, but not Judas. Thankfully, there's a different example here in the text. It's an example of love. It's an example of worship. In fact, there are several examples of love here, but there's one that's especially important and especially stands out. One remarkable example before us is that of the love of Mary. You like the name Mary? A lot of people do. A lot of people name their daughters Mary. Mary loved her master, her Lord and Savior. This was not a romantic love. This was a worshipful love. A love of humility, respect, and honor, and devotion. Her love and devotion to Jesus is clearly seen in an extravagant act of worship here. And this sets her apart from all those around her. Note that that was not her intent. She was being self-forgetful here, wasn't even thinking about what others might think. I think we'll notice that. So along with Jesus gathered here at Simon's house would have been the disciples, Martha, Mary, Lazarus, and likely Simon, and maybe even a few others for the main meal. And why are they gathered together here? They're, we're told here they're celebrating Jesus. They're honoring Jesus. They're celebrating because Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Lazarus has been given back to his sisters, Martha and Mary, who had grieved their loss. And so it's fitting that they celebrate, and they're honoring Jesus in their celebration. In fact, they're giving this dinner because they love the Lord Jesus Christ. They're honoring him here. Look at verse 2 where it says, So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Martha is serving. Surprised? (laughs) When we see her in the other Gospels, that's what she's doing. She's serving. 
That's how we see Martha in the New Testament. She's serving. That's how we see Martha in the Gospels before us. And we always find her serving. She's a faithful servant. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. That's a very good example. It's one for us that we ought to follow to see what, see what needs to be done and do it. Take part in serving and, and hear no less. She has likely gone out of, out of her way to make a wonderful meal. She's likely gone all out to make and serve the best meal she can make. And on that note, we sometimes mistakenly think of, of Martha's service as inappropriate. I don't know why we're led to think that, but sometimes we are. And maybe it's because of a passage like the one we find in Luke 10. We have the account in Luke's gospel where Martha is busy about the house serving and Mary is found at Jesus' feet listening to his teaching. And when Martha asked Jesus to send Mary to help, hey, Jesus, could you tell my sister to get busy? (laughs) What does Jesus say? Luke 10, verses 41 and 42. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Now, I've read a few commentaries, and I've noticed that a lot of commentators talk about the better portion, the better portion that Mary had chosen. And yet, in the original language that the Bible was written, in the original language that this text was written, the word that's used is actually good, not better. And I think that's sometimes why we think what she did was better, because some people, sometimes people preach it as this was the better thing to do. And yet, Jesus wasn't going to send Mary away. She had chosen what was good to sit at Jesus' feet, listen to his teaching. Note that Jesus didn't say that she had chosen what was better. He said she had chosen what was good, the good portion. And we might be tempted to think that Jesus is saying that Mary was doing the better thing, but in the original language, of course, it doesn't say that. It says good. There's nothing wrong with, Mary, uh, with Martha serving. You realize that? There was nothing wrong with Martha serving. And yet, here's a good reminder for us as we just pause and think about the differences between Martha and Mary. If we're only serving, we're going to miss out on opportunities to grow and be strengthened in our faith that would help us in our serving. And if we're only worshiping, we're missing out on what will help us grow and mature in our faith if we're not serving. So remember that serving has its place too. We must always begin with worship. And we ought to grow in our faith through our worship of who God is and worshiping our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for what He has accomplished for us on the cross, but that worship should always lead to service. Not because we have to, because we want to, because of who God is and and what Jesus Christ has done for us. So remember that serving has its place too. It's important. Of course, so does sitting at Jesus' feet to be taught by Him. It's important. It's a lesson for us to find balance. Find balance. Worship and serve. Not all sitting and soaking in the teaching of God's Word, there should also be serving. Not all serving only, we should also seek to be taught and so that we're growing under the teaching of the Word of God, preparing ourselves for service. I remember in some of my younger years, 
expressing to my father. I wasn't sure about what the Lord might want me to do, and, and my father would always say, there's a prepared place for a prepared person. And God has always been good to prepare a place for me to serve him, a way for me to serve him as I prepared myself, and you should do the same. I am far from a perfect example of that. I ran from the Lord for many years, refusing to prepare myself and regret not preparing myself earlier than I did, but yet God is patient and didn't waste any of those years, has used them. Prepare yourself for service by giving yourself in worship to God. So here in John 12, we find a practical example. Martha, who sees what needs to be done and serves the Lord in a way that she thinks is best. We learn from Martha just as we learn from Mary. What about Lazarus? He's at the table too. What did Lazarus do anyway? I don't know. I don't know what Lazarus did. Bible commentator Kent Hughes says Lazarus must have been Martha and Mary's younger brother because we never see him doing anything. (laughs) Any other older siblings that feel that way? (laughs) There were those we see here who served Jesus. But here's a note of importance as we think about Lazarus. We don't see Lazarus doing any something, anything, but I'm, I'm sure he did something. And there's an important reason why Martha and Mary are so glad to have him back. I'll note in a moment. But there were those we see here who served Jesus. But their, their salvation was not based on their service. It was not based on their works. They served out of gratitude for what Jesus was doing for them and what he would do for them, and so should we. They didn't serve to get, they served to give joyfully from the overflow of their worship-filled hearts. And in Lazarus, I think there's a lesson also. We're not shown anything he did, but one thing is very clear. It's what Jesus did for Lazarus. It's what Jesus did for his sisters Martha and Mary by raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus contributed nothing to his resurrection. He couldn't. He was dead. Which is an important reminder to us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ Our physical bodies are wasting away. They are on their way toward death. Unless the Lord calls us home in the rapture before then, our bodies will see a resurrection. But our salvation is, is not because of anything that we can do, not because of any worship we can give to God. It's because of His great mercy, His gift of love toward us. Forgiveness for our sins. We come to Jesus. When you come to Jesus in faith, you come empty-handed. And Jesus saves completely when you turn from your sin and repentance, putting your trust in Jesus Christ in faith, in Him alone. Not in your works, not in your performance. So that's Lazarus. And then, of course, there's Mary. Verse 3 says, Mary therefore took a pound 
of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And here for the rest of our time, I want you to think about this this morning, this extravagant act of worship. John tells us here that Mary poured out this pound of expensive ointment on Jesus' feet. If you read the same account in Matthew and Mark, you're going to find a few differences. But that's all right. There's no doubt that all three accounts are accurate and communicate just what God intended. God, in fact, used the authors of the Bible and their own differences to record things from different perspectives for God's good purposes But there's no doubt all three accounts are accurate and communicate what God intends for us to see here. And so John emphasizes, his emphasis is that Mary poured this pound of pure nard on Jesus' feet, which was certainly an act of humility on Martha's account, on Mary's account. We're also told here that it's an expensive ointment. Do you see that? Expensive, made from pure nard. What made it so expensive? Well, nard was a fragrant oil. It was extracted from the root of a plant that was native to the mountains of northern India. It had to travel a long way to get into Mary's hands. And so it was expensive import. And what Mary used, we're told here, was pure, pure nard, making it even more valuable. In fact, we see the value of it in what Judas says. When Judas says this in verse 4, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, verse 5 says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So this pure nard, which Mary poured on Jesus' feet, was worth 300 denarii. How much was that? Well, that was about... In that day, that was about a year's wages. And it says here in verse 3 that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It was, to say the least, a powerful aroma, powerful perfume. In fact, so powerful, it was often used to embalm a body to cover up the odor of decay. Hence, what Jesus says about allowing her to save this for the day day of his burial. And yet, she doesn't save it. She pours it on his feet. Why did Mary do this? Why did she do that? She did this because of her devotion to Jesus, her, her love and respect for Jesus. Think of that fact, too, that she had just received her brother back from the dead. It was the men who were the ones who provided for their families primarily in those days, the men who did that, the, the labor to provide for their families. So you can imagine Martha and Mary, glad to have their brother back for more than one reason. Think, too, of the fact that Mary had, as often as possible, sat at the feet of Jesus and had listened carefully to his teaching. And she had no doubt heard as Jesus spoke and taught, heard him on more than one occasion speak of his own impending death. And so, 
How does Mary respond at this meal for Jesus? She, and I want you to note this, she forgets herself. She forgets herself. And she responds to the presence of Jesus with this extravagant act of worship. Something worth a year's wages? And not only was this an extravagant act of worship, the way in which she gave it, again, let me emphasize the self-forgetfulness of it, she wasn't thinking about what other people would think of her for doing this. It says in verse 3 that she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. That is also noteworthy. Mary was no doubt kneeling at Jesus' feet, But even more self-forgetful was this fact of letting down her hair in that culture. For a woman of respect to let down her hair in the presence of men, it would have been unheard of. It could have actually been considered indecent or immoral, but Mary takes no thought to what anyone thinks of her act of worship. She takes no thought to what others will think as they watch and what they think of this extravagant act of worship. Do you realize that this is just the kind of self-forgetfulness that God desires of you in your worship? You hear it from Jesus in John chapter 4 when speaking to the woman at the well. John 4 and verse 23, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. People who will worship God from the bottom of their hearts with their whole lives, leaving no area of their life unexposed to their worship of God and surrendered to Him in humility before God. You can also hear it in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7 when you learn that God loves a willing and cheerful giver, one who gives not because someone is compelling him to give, but because he wishes to honor God. He wishes to worship Him from the bottom of his heart. Think about that. And think about how Mary gave and worshiped Jesus with her whole heart, without a thought for what anyone would think of her. For those of you who have been here for the last two and a half years, which is about how long I've been here, maybe a little over two and a half years. Have you ever heard me speak about giving other than when it's time to receive the offering? I'm devoted to preaching through the text of God's Word, and we're doing that through the Gospel of John. But when I come to this extravagant act of worship, I can't help but think about our giving. Because, as I said, as we started the service this morning, this is an hour of worship. It's not our singing that's worship. It's, it's part of it. 
but we also worship through prayer. We also worship through the Word as we do now. We also worship at the Lord's Supper as we did this morning. We also worship when we give. You realize that when you give, you ought to always be giving as an act of worship to God, not because the plate is in front of you, not because everybody else around you is doing it, but because you want to worship God with what you give. In fact, you may have been taught to think of your giving to God's work in terms of a 10% tithe. Some have taught that you should give this whether you can afford it or not, but Mary wasn't thinking this way. A year's worth of wages in the value of her gift? And in fact, I think it's remarkable that the way she gave it wasn't in a way that someone could take it up, scrape it up, and go sell it after she was done to benefit the work of the ministry. No, she wholeheartedly gave. Did you know that the 10% that some have taught as a minimum in your giving to the church isn't gospel? It may be a shock to some of you. That number is actually a number from the Old Testament law. In fact, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were required to give around 23% of their annual income. And it was more like a tax than our giving. It was a legal requirement. But on top of that giving, God taught the Israelites to give free will offerings. And when you see that in the Old Testament, that's actually about the closest we get to what we see in the New Testament and how the New Testament teaches believers to give a free will offering. The Bible teaches us some important things about our resources and our money. First of all, everything, everything you need to know, everything you have, everything you say, these are mine. They're not yours. They're God's. Everything belongs to God, including your money. And you should be thoughtful about how you spend it and how you give it. Thoughtful, worshipful in how you give because it's a way of worshiping God. Second, God commands that you give to the church and to the ministry of the gospel It's not a question about whether God wants you to give or not. That's clear that He wants you to give. Thirdly, you should give generously. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God commands you to give. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should also joyfully give generously, even sacrificially at times, even as we see in Mary's example, and with great joy. While being thoughtful, considering how much you can give based on your income, Fourth, you shouldn't brag about what you're giving. You should never give in a way that's showy before, the, before others. In fact, sometimes I think of our passing the offering plates as sometimes it, it, it'd be easy to be showy about see what I'm giving, even though nobody knows, knows how much. We ought to be discreet about that. Only the Lord should know it's between Him and ourselves Again, it's about worshiping God. It's worship given to God in how we give, in what we give. And finally, if you give for God's glory, 
God promises to bless you. And I'm not going to stand here and tell you that God is going to give you ten times back in financial resources what you gave. That is not biblical. But God will bless you, and I promise you that God's blessings are far greater than anything you can accumulate on earth. He may bless you with financial resources, but that's not guaranteed in God's word. But he does promise that if you give, he will bless you. I've heard it said this way, you can never outgive God. I believe that's true. So the New Testament teaching is not that your giving is to be constrained by a percentage. Did you hear that? The New Testament teaching is not that you're to give constrained to a percentage, but that your giving is to be according to what you are able to give. For some of us, giving 10% of our income would be more than we're able. But for others, 10% of our income would be far less than we are able. And as the Lord blesses, we should consider giving more. That's what the New Testament teaches. Willing, joyful, extravagant, worshipful givers. Mary gave willingly. She gave extravagantly, not to be seen but to be worshipful of her Lord and Savior because she was self-forgetful. She wasn't thinking of herself. She wasn't thinking of those around her. She was thinking of Jesus. This wasn't an act of showiness. It was an act of worship, an act of self-forgetfulness. And you too should give willingly. And when was the last time you were extravagant in how you gave from what God has entrusted to you with some self-forgetfulness. When we pass the offering plates, no one should feel compelled to give, but if you give, you should give as an act of worship from the bottom of your heart because you're grateful for what Jesus has done for you, finished for you on the cross. What God expects of us is that followers of Jesus be people who give not according to some percentage, but according to our love and gratitude for all that he has done for us, for all that Jesus has finished at Calvary. And because of his grace, God's desire is that we become willing, joyful, cheerful givers. And may I add here, this is not only about your money. This is also about giving of yourselves. We talked about the difference between Mary and Martha. One was serving. One was always worshiping. But, but I have to believe that, they, that they, they traded off at times too. It's about giving of yourselves. When was the last time you jumped at a ministry opportunity without thinking first, I don't know, this is going to be hard. Or I don't think I have time for that. Or this is going to be costly for me. When you see an opportunity to serve, let the Lord nudge you toward it. Be willing to serve God. That too, done for God's glory, is worship. As a way of giving to God for His glory. So this morning, may God strengthen us in Christ. May he so overwhelm us with his grace in giving Jesus for sinners that we humbly and generously 
give ourselves in service to Him and give to His work from the resources that He has allowed us to manage for Him and give it all as an act of worship to God as living sacrifices for His glory that we might make our Savior known that others might come to Christ in this world in which we live. God, help us.